0: (laughs) folks welcome back to the jake feinberg show and it's been too long but what an honor to bring back uh really not just an incredible musician and an amazing producer a guy uh who fused uh really just a lot of talent with uh really in some ways a lot of luck and sometimes it's better to be lucky than good but when you put those two together you wind up with a legacy um that is a bit awe-inspiring and hard to tackle, so we're going to try to do set two here. Norbert Putnam, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show.
1: My pleasure, Jake.
0: You know, man, um, I, I just before it leaves my mind, I, I wanted to ask you about this this album you produced in. Um, let's say it's around around seventy nine, and I'm I'm trying to figure out. It's called Mountain Moods with Larry Nectel. And I was wondering about was that was your connection to that Jim Horn or did you know Larry too?
1: No, I that's when I first met Larry. I knew him though. I knew all the work he did in LA.
0: Right? You did know so you knew of him?
1: Yeah, but I had not met him. You know, he he, he was the only guy to ever win a Grammy. For, for playing a backing track.
0: Exactly, dude.
1: You know, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Waters is one of the greatest piano parts ever played. You know? And, you know, that that was just a small part of what he could do. But, the, but how I came to do it, I uh, what was the guy's name? I came down to Nashville, ran MCA. Jimmy Boyd, right? Yeah. Jimmy comes down to Nashville and... Uh, start selling a lot of records with the country guys and he was he, and he gave little deals to Jim Horn and favorite players a little deal I mean they had like ten thousand dollars
2: <laughs> right right
1: right to go and make a little record
2: that's unbelievable
1: and I, and I did I did uh, did I produce Jim's record maybe I did or maybe I just engineered it I can't remember but now uh, Larry called me up and said, you and you he liked Jim's record. You wanna do this with me? And I said, God, I'd just like to hang with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so and you know, not only could he play the piano, but he was one of <clears throat>, LA's uh, sight reading bass players too.
0: Well, I didn't are you kidding me? I did not know
1: that. He was such a good sight reader. You know the Elvis special? Uh the Elvis well, they all the special. Well I
0: mean yeah, I mean that were, yeah.
1: Sixty nine comeback or something, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Nectel's playing in the orchestra and playing all those bass parts that were in that form. And those were difficult parts. <laughs> well, they would call Nectel's part was really difficult. Now, now there are a lot of great sight readers in LA, I might say.
0: But there are guys that can read fly can... paper. They can read you know, fly they uh, I mean
1: so you, you,
0: but you, you were, this is really fascinating because I did a deep dive and I really wanted to talk. This is to me fascinating and there was a a big write up on it, but um last time you talked about that classic story about, oh man, the, the, the cat, the, the Elvis session in Nashville where the cat came in.
1: With the cl- the new
0: classical guitar, and then the guitar wound up getting smashed, on, you know, during the session, It wound up breaking. Um, but can yeah. I, I, I? You know, this is the thing. You, you know, here here's Norbert Putnam sitting up on top of a warehouse in Memphis, drinking a gin and tonic. And I I really was wondering if you could talk about, you know. It, I guess just sort of like your relationship with Elvis. Why did what made the Stack sessions? You, you said something to the effect that the, the, the sessions at Stacks in Memphis were always somehow more soulful than the ones in Nashville re- regarding Elvis. And I, I, well, I want you to just talk about that whole because th- the, these Stack sessions, I got to tell you, Raised on Rock, Good Times, and Promised Land. Well, there was this whole release of Elvis at Stax too. It's some of the funkiest Elvis I've ever heard in my life. It's so amazing, and I just wanted you to take us through that time because, you know, he was not—he was pretty—he was pretty tired. You guys didn't get through nearly the kind of material each night. He was eating cheeseburgers, and but you guys still had a good—the bond was still really strong between you two. Well, well, first of
1: all, we loved Elvis, okay. <clears throat> when you recorded with Presley, if he was feeling good, he was better than anybody in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> the son of a bitch really could sing. And he had this tremendous range. It went down to his baritone, you know. Yeah. And uh and I don't know, he had at least a three octave range, I think. And and he could get up and scream like little Richard when he was younger, you know. But but uh but, but yeah, here's what happened. Elvis wanted to. Uh, I. This is he's starting to gain weight, you know. Right. And I don't think he wanted to come to Nashville. And uh, and they started with a Memphis Rhythm Section. By the way, my favorite bass player in, in the whole South, uh, Tommy Cogdale came in.
2: Oh
0: my! I got to tell you. Now, I need to, I need you to tell me that. that he's your favorite player.
1: Tommy Cogbill was a jazz guitarist.
0: Oh, my
1: God. No, he wasn't. Yes, he was. And uh, Chip's <laughs> moment has him play the bass because he's got Reggie Young, who can come up with his crafty little intro. Next oh, yeah. Him. Nobody was better than Reggie did that. So, so Tommy goes over <laughs> and just kills the bass parts, you know. And, uh, and after we all moved up to Nashville for Muscle Shoals, uh, uh, Jerry Wexler brings uh, Rachel Franklin down here, and Rick didn't have a bass player or a guitar player. They'd lift <laughs> 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 they had all left him. But Roger Hawkins and uh, Spooner Oldham and Reggie. Uh, not Reggie Young. Oh, oh, who it, 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 it played the guitar? Wasn't Reggie?
0: Well, it was it? Maybe it was um, it was your oh, dear friend. You? Another guy I wanted to ask you. It was a uh, Chip. Chip Young.
1: Chips moment.
0: Chips uh, not Chip Young play. He didn't play guitar, did he? No, but uh, but
1: uh, but uh, Chips moment and Tommy Cogbill came over here to Florence or Muscle Shoals and did the two songs with Aretha that made her career turn around. Really? And, yeah, that's the and so when you hear Never Loved a Man or I Love You. Yeah. Well, well, that that's old Tommy. And the blues licks, a few blues licks you hear is Chips moment.
0: Whoa, that's insane, dude.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> chips, so,
0: dude. So,
1: so, so, so Tommy Cogbill, uh, listen to uh, God, listen to Elvis Presley's uh, "Kentucky Rain." The '69. Session. Oh my
0: God! Wait, you see on bass on that? You, there are no, there's no, there's nothing where he was on uh, playing guitar, jazz guitar, is he? Oh
1: no, no. I don't think he ever played jazz guitar after he got into that rhythm section. Right. He, he played bass. Oh, he's a great producer, too. Uh, but when this young kid came down to Memphis, his name was something Diamond.
2: <laughs> Harry
1: Diamond. Right. Harry Diamond. They changed his name to Neil. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they changed his name.
1: No, I'm making all this shit up. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, but he came down to Memphis because the rhythms, they were, they were cutting heads with Dusty Springfield, Son of a Preacher Man, yeah, stuff like that. Sure. And uh, so they come down there, and Tommy uh, uh, produces him, because I guess Chips was busy with something else. And so Tommy, uh, Tommy produced, uh, uh, oh, oh! oh so, so they're in there, they, they, he doesn't have a lot of songs, he had four or five songs. And they do the songs. And Tommy says to Neil, Man, I still don't think we got a single here. You got anything else? And um, and this is, I'm telling you this story secondhand because it's a famous story. And Neil says, I started a song about Caroline Candy. Oh, no. And he said, well, you got any of it? He said, I maybe got a verse and a chorus. And so he does that. They record that. You know? Yeah. And, 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 and the organ player played them. Oh,
0: absolutely!
1: <laughs> it had a great intro. Bobby, Bobby, something played that, and, uh, and uh, well, that, that was just. Or Diamond goes back to New York, finishes the song, but they come back and complete the record. And Tommy Cogbill produced that and produced first, the first three or four hits on Neil Diamond. So Tommy had great ears. He could play the guitar. He could play the bass. I stole more licks from Tommy Cogbill than James Jamerson and Paul McCartney put together.
0: That is a profound statement.
1: <laughs>
0: that is really profound.
1: <laughs> you know what the great thing was? Oh, my God. When I When I played something similar to him, I didn't play it well enough for you what, to say you stole it from time to <laughs> <God. laughs>
0: Right, exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> but, you know, we all, all those bass players stole from each other. You know? Right, of course, playing of, playing course, on, of
0: course, of course, of
1: course. On a Motown record, James Jamerson played. <clears throat> and I might play something similar to that somewhere, sometime, then you wouldn't even think about James Jamerson, you know. And uh, that's sort of what... But Joe, you were
0: asking me about soulful. Social... Well, no, but I, what I was saying is that it seemed in the... Uh, there was this very... I just really did a deep dive into this yesterday. I became kind of obsessed. Like, that was the first time that you had been to... Because, I mean, at that point, Stax was in trouble. This is the Elvis Sessions. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah.
0: And, I and, and like, because the Raised on Rock was... That was... Uh, you know the legendary Donald Duck, Dunn, Al Jackson. They they brought in some of the stacks guys, but then Good Times and Promised Land. That's all. That's all Putnam.
1: Yeah. Well, here's what happened. Yeah, the first group that came in, and Tommy was there a few nights too. Really, and and I, and I guess some of the stacks guys were there. You know, right? But it wasn't moving as fast as they all just liked it to move. You know. I got to tell you, Elvis got on the first take a lot of times.
0: You mean he? So he was? He was? He? You think he was? He was nailing it, but the cats were not getting it on the first take.
1: Well, I think the Memphis cats were used to taking their
0: time. They were. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know,
1: they weren't. They weren't trained like like Nashville, New York, LA players. Right.
0: Knock us off. Right. Exactly. I dig.
1: As a matter of fact. I don't, I don't recall the time of, uh, when a producer might have said to the keyboard guy, uh, why don't you take the intro and still the guitar player? Okay, let's roll it. Count it off. Now, there's no rehearsal, right? And the, the keyboard player just kills his intro. Okay? That's a level of playing that the guys had. And they expected to be called upon at any time to be great. Wow. <laughs> that oh yeah. just love that okay you hmm. love that hmm. so i don't know i was uh i was in california i think or someplace i it might have been the time dan fogelberg and i were in Sausalito doing which record without a pen
0: oh man i'm trying to figure out i mean no because this, this is that was what was revelatory and i should have known that but you had really moved on totally into production at that point. Like you'd you'd actually stop playing sessions a little bit.
1: Yeah, it only, it really. After nineteen seventy. That
0: is that blew my mind when I read that.
1: After nineteen seventy, I would always come and play for all this. Exactly. Okay? And uh, because <laughs> I mean, man, I ended up playing on one hundred and twenty tracks over the next seven years. Holy sh- my god! Yeah. But, but I have to tell you, the first week he came to Nashville, we got 35 done in five nights. Okay?
2: And we haven't heard this
1: material. He'd only heard about half of it. <laughs> and, and it was just, uh, uh, it, it was like, uh, if if he was getting it, and then you're doing the first take, it's like, hang on, because he's killing this vocal. And I think when I told you, he would go in the control room and listen. And we're all gathering around. We're saying, if we get a chance to do it again, maybe I could do this. Maybe you could do that. We're all pitching ideas around, right? Don't right. Listen to each other, and then a lot of times if the guitar player has done something. Else, I say I want to double that with you, right? And, and and so we're doing all this in case. But if he plays it back twice in the control room, oh, he's listening twice. <laughs> that, that means he's thinking of keeping it. Wow. <laughs> and so we said we said we gotta do something about this so we came up with this little scheme oh my god he's playing it back a third time okay one of us i don't know if we drew sticks or whatever you draw (laughs) one of us would have to go in there and we'd stand by all of us and he'd say hey putt what do you think i'd say hey king Oh, we're, we're calling King.
0: I love it, dude. He's calling we're you, part You're calling him. This is unreal, dude.
1: I say, I say hey, King, <laughs> could you do one more for me. <laughs> yeah, sure. What, what are you thinking? I say, I got a thing I want to do going into the course, and James has got a thing he wants to change. Oh, hell, let's do it again. he said. and he'd run on out there, right? And so you, at one night, a year or two down into my tenure with, with him. I walked in that room, I was standing there, I didn't say anything, he goes, you want to see me do it again, don't you? You think this is tough,
2: don't you? All right,
1: come on, let's go do it again. <laughs> I've never met an artist like that, you know? <laughs> and so we, so what happened, I was out in California, I think, with Pogelberg, right and Phil Jarvis called me, <clears throat> and said, um, I said, we'd like to have... Um, I think did Reggie come down? Oh, do you have a list of the
0: guys that played? Yeah, it? I'm gonna. I'm gonna, That's that was part of the. Yeah, it was all the cats. Hold on one second. It was all the cats. Um, it, yet I wasn't sure if if uh, if if it was Ron Tut or Kerrigan on those sessions or both.
1: I think it, I
0: think it was Ron Tut. Dude, can you? Pl- did was when did you did was that the first? When was the first time you you crossed paths with Todd? I I think if I could have seen. That may be the first. Oh that my! Maybe
1: Yeah, I, I I never played with Rod except on this stuff. And uh, and uh, gee, I, and Jerry Sheff was playing with him. You know? I wonder why they didn't bring Sheff. You know, maybe Sheff had taken another kick Yeah, with
0: exactly. Him. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, this was my yes, and yeah.
1: Chef was a great player, you know. And
0: uh, incredible.
1: And but anyway, so I I, I think it was Ron. to David Briggs was on keyboards. My old buddy from Muscle Charles and me. I was Chip Young there. Who was the rhythm yeah? Player. No, I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna keep riffing. I'm gonna I'm gonna get it for you. Don't worry. I'll, I'm gonna find out because they did this release. Um, in 20. Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah. w- w- at that point, like, well, first of all, you were also like. I mean, you you would say that normally, within the after the first song was cut, you guys were already getting time and a half in the studio. I mean, it was always a, a lucrative time. Then there'd be Chinese or barbecue coming in. I mean, it just sounded it sounded too. It didn't sound real actually to me. <laughs> the the whole situation. Well, well,
1: well now, at this point in his life, Presley's nocturnal.
0: That's right. He gets, That's right. He
1: gets, he gets up at 5, just like everybody else, except it's 5 in the afternoon. And he would have his breakfast around 6 and be at the studio promptly at 8 o'clock to start his day. And it killed us in Nashville because I'm, when I was playing in 1970, I would have a session 10 that morning, 10 to 1, pack it up, go to another studio, another artist, 2 to 5, go to RCA at 6, and he's not there, but the clock is rolling, you know. And, uh, and so he would come at 8 o'clock and entertain us until 10 with <laughs> some of the funniest stories you ever heard. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, and we'd start to record at 10 in the evening. Now I've been in the studio for 12 hours, and so has the rest of the band, pretty much. You know. And so between 10 in the evening and 5 a.m., we'd knock out five, six, seven tracks. We played until he got the vocal.
0: And, uh, oh, you know who was, did that? You know who did that? Organ, uh, that organ Bobby, Bobby Emmons. Bobby
1: Emmons played that song uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, on, on uh, Sweet Caroline.
0: Caroline. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: Isn't that brilliant?
0: That's insane. Well, I mean, the, and I just just to put a button on that story, he had. Would you say that that whole song was created right then and there? I mean, it didn't sound like Neil had much of anything, really. He had a he had, a, he, had a, he had a chorus or something.
1: Yeah, but that's a, he had a verse and a chorus.
0: Verse and a so chorus, that,
1: yeah. Yeah, and so he would have had to write a second verse, maybe, or a third right. verse. But uh, the bass player on that, Cogbill, since he's producing, and this was something, the problem I had, it's very hard to play the bass on the track with the artist and the rhythm section and really know if your artist did anything. Right. Because bass players and drummers play together, Right. And so when I was playing a bass part, I'm, really, I'm not even hearing a lot of the keyboard parts and guitar parts, because I'm so locked a drummer, right? Right. And uh, when I got to produce that first album on Joe Baez, I thought I was just the band leader and a bass player that week until Christopherson backed out. So I had to go to the control room, and we'd do a tape, he would say, how was it? And I would say, I'm not sure. I mean, here I to not play this bass, for, and we don't have to listen together. And so Tommy, when he was doing uh, uh, Diamond, he uh, uh, he would have uh, he would have my buddy, my buddy, uh, the other great bass player down there. No, there was
2: there
0: were a bunch, dude. I mean, I mean, I've been trying to find. Every time I look up, I'm finding a new freaking player. It's it's. I mean, Bobby Moore. I don't think it was Bob Moore.
1: No, no. He was a Nashville guy. He didn't he didn't travel much. No, and in the rhythm section in Memphis, that it was uh what was his name? And he was a good arranger too. And he played a great part of Sweet Caroline. And it'll come to me in a second.
0: I'm just looking at yeah. this these Elvis Stack sessions. It was definitely I'm just gonna read up Reggie Young, Bobby Wood, uh, Ronnie Tutt. <clears throat> and then there's uh-huh. there's Alan Rush. Um, oh, oh, then there was this cat Pachuki, man, the engineer. Al Pachuki.
1: Oh, well, he was a natural engineer and worked with uh, Felton Jarvis.
0: Right. And, uh, uh, and you know
1: what? You know, oh, well, the other thing was uh, Stacks, they only had a. This mention of the original equipment, the studio was almost
0: closed down. I want—that's what I was interested in. You said you got it was such a beautiful thing. You drove this rental car, stumbled over there, got in. It was just like weeds and grass. Where it was just very—you really were articulate about like how. I mean they they really were already shipping everything out to Clarence Avon, who just passed away. He took it over and got turned it into Sussex, and that became a West Coast label. So you're telling oh. me that like. Was there um, even? a... I just well,
1: picked, R, go ahead. RCA sent a remote truck from New York, and it parked it in the parking lot behind Stacks, and 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 ran in cabling, for the microphones. Oh my God! And they raised a speaker system in the in the control room, the old control room, Stacks, so Felton Jarvis could sit in there and look at the band playing, okay, while the engineer was out in the truck recording all of it, and. uh and, and there were but there also some great engineers from New York came down as well, so were, they didn't suffer. Matter of fact, it was probably better than the gear that they they originally had at stats.
0: Honestly, the, those Elvis albums sound pristine.ly Good, so yes. they did a great freaking and job on
1: that. There was a guy named Mike Moran in New York that I love. He worked on that stuff. He got a great drum sound, you know, and. Uh, uh, and, of course, I was excited to walk into those hallowed walls with Otis Redding, and all those great guys.
0: Absolutely, man.
1: <laughs> uh, and, of course, th- this rhythm section, you know, me and Briggs, we're going to chart it out when we hear it. And so, literally, uh, they, play, they play a demo or something, and I grab a legal pad, he grabs a legal pad, and we start writing. And pretty much by the time the demo's finished, we got a chart. We we're ready to play. All this, okay? And, uh, and, 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 and I
0: wonder who the guitar was. Reggie there? Yeah, it was. It was there's a. There's. It looks like. Uh, you know, it, uh, it was Reggie Young, Briggs, you, Tut, and then there's you know. But th- these these sessions were over several. It just says. Um, The title Elvis's Stacks is slightly misleading, suggesting Elvis Presley decided to set up shop at the famed Memphis Recording Studio so he could use their house band or perhaps co-op some of the southern soul groove. Um, That wasn't the case. Elvis chose the Stacks studio to conduct several recordings in 73 for a simple reason. It was close to his Memphis home. He rented out the studio twice, once in July and once in December, and brought in his crack backing band. Um, And... Like I said, those albums wound up on Raised on Rock, Good Times, and Promised Land. There were a few guitar players listed. Burt, oh, Burton's on there too. Yeah, Burton's on there, and another Charlie Hodge. Uh, well,
1: Charlie, well, Charlie Hodge was just added to the card. He was the guy who handed Elvis his scarves, <laughs> <laughs> but
2: no,
1: no, no, but he was actually a talented guy. Oh,
0: I, dude, I, I guarantee he was talented.
1: He, he could sing harmony with Elvis. You know, when they, when he's hanging. But he lived with Elvis basically. And uh he was there. If so Elvis wanted to do some gospel tunes, he would come in there and sing harmonies with him He could play piano and guitar and uh so he was really a talented guy. <laughs> but uh but 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 they'd always put him on the sessions because he's in the building. Okay. So we pick up some extra money like like he was a player. Right. He didn't usually player or on or anything. You know uh, 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 I gotta get this bass player's name name right. There, and it'll come to me in a second. I'll probably just send it to you.
0: Yeah, no, it's you know, there, there's uh, just uh, while you're thinking about it, I I wanted to. I mean, this was fascinating to me. I've been since I last talked to you. Um, we got this uh, almost recently. Uh, this small town in Arizona called Wilcox. They they drove in uh, to this nonprofit that I work at. And dropped and and donated 1500 country records uh, most of them are uh, most of them are, are you know it's just a lot of you know Charlie pride and uh, you know Lynn Anderson and uh, that kind of stuff but then I just wanted to talk to you about, I know that you had you and Briggs opened your own studio but there there's this studio that keeps coming up that I wanted to ask you about, Woodland Sound Studios with Ron Chansey. Does yes, that,
1: Ron Chansey, great producer.
0: Did you work with him at all, or was that, are you already in production when he started to... I'm just looking here at this album.
1: Oh, okay. it, can I tell you? I, I need to Please. I, when I came to Nashville in 65, I was probably the worst country bassist in the city. Okay. Because I never played any country music. Right. We didn't do any in Muscle Shoals, and uh, and uh, all I ever played was mostly black R and B the Ray Charles. I always, I always said I got to play with two greatest guys ever, Ray Charles and Elvis Presley. Okay, there wasn't anybody who could put emotion behind a great song better than Ray Charles.
0: What out? What, I'm sorry. When did I, I don't think I knew you played with him.
1: Uh, all I did with him was the television show.
0: That's good I got, enough.
1: I got a call from Charlie McCoy one
0: day. Oh boy!
1: Charlie was the music director for the Hee Haw show,
0: right? Oh my! I love. Oh my! Go ahead.
1: Uh, so, so Ray Charles is coming in to do duets with with who was the who was the guy on the show from Bakersfield?
0: Uh, oh, Buck Owens.
1: Yeah. So. Uh, Together again, you know, <laughs> and so and, and and Ray, you know, Ray's country record was the greatest country record ever.
0: Absolutely,
1: but here's the deal: Charlie says, "Hey, they wanted to get a more help rhythm section uh, for Ray." Oh God, call me in, and so it was me and Kenny Butcher, who was my favorite drummer in Nashville. Uh, we were in Area Code Six One Five together. Matter of fact, let's see who else was there. Oh, uh, Matt Gaiden was there. He wrote "Everlasting Love,"
0: you know. Well, no, I mean, well, I'm, don't even get me started about Matt Gaiden, dude. I, oh, I wait, yeah,
1: I played the bass part on the first record ever made of uh, "Everlasting Love," and it's got that—that's a real jammer. Some bass part. Oh my god, <laughs> dude! But, but anyway, but anyway, hmm. so, so we go down to the television studio, and uh, we get there early. We get set up. And uh and Ray comes in, you know, and he's got, he's got the guy the has got his elbow and he can get him to sit down. He right.
2: Goes,
1: How are you boys doing today? He said, like We <laughs> said, We're doing great, Ray. He said, uh yeah. He said, Any of you boys know any of my songs? We know all of your songs <laughs> 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 Well, <clears throat> well Buck is right there with him. And Bruce said, Well, we got these two Buck Owens things we're going to do. And then, Buck, I got to get you over the other set. So we need to knock these things out in like 10, 15 minutes, right? Wow. Oh, Charlie, Corey had written a chart for the two Buck Owens songs. This is great, okay? And so uh, Ray said, uh, He says, okay, I'm going to count it off. Well, he counts it off. No matter what tempo he counted off, He would play it a little slower.
0: That's just how he felt it it that way.
1: I guess he did, okay? So I moved around. Uh, Did I ever send you a copy of my book?
0: Oh, I love it so much,
1: yeah. At the end of each chapter, there's a QR code. (laughs) And if you hold your smartphone over the QR code, you can see the video of me moving around so I can see Ray's left hand because he's going to count it off and I'm going to watch his hand come down from that bass note and it's going to be late. <laughs> 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 you, I'm about 25 years old, 26 maybe, and I'm staring intently and I'm in the camera for a second and I can't remember what the song was. But here's what happened. So we knock out the two uh, uh, right right? I think 10 or 12 minutes. And Buck hugs Ray. He's going over to the other set. And Ray said, Sister, he says, you boys know any of my songs. We said, we know all your songs. He said, I bet you don't know this one. And he would just go into one, right? And and we'd all fall in. And by the time we finished the first one, the producer and the controller was going, hey, man, that's great. Let's get a few of these. <laughs> and, and so, we did five or six of his standards, and I don't think there was a rehearsal for any of them. And are um, you kidding me? We did me? George on My Mind," and we did.
0: Okay, we had played those
1: things when we were sixteen.
0: Well, of course. I mean, you were na- you were rocking out of you know that. But this was for the hee-haw, or this just ne- was just it got. Did it ever come out? Did these? Uh, did, oh, oh, oh,
1: here's what happened. So that particular show with Buck Owens went down just as it's supposed to. But whenever they needed filler, they would pu- they push one of Ray's things in there. Oh, my God. And that's how I got in there and got on the TV show. Uh, and, and I can't remember what the song was. But uh, uh,
0: You're saying there is video footage because of the QR code? You can queue it up and, and get the video of you moving around?
1: Well, the QR code takes you to YouTube. And the video starts Dude, playing.
0: very hip, man. Very, very hip.
1: Yeah. Oh, by the way, my whole my whole book is like that because I couldn't afford to, to license those
2: songs.
1: No, so I just send it over to uh, YouTube because they are, they're already set up to pay the, the publishing or whatever they pay. Just, just you know. Oh, absolutely. And uh, but but th- there's two videos in there. There's that one. Where you'll see me staring right at his left hand. And it's one of his great songs, too. You know? And uh, and then there's another video of Eric Code 615 on the Johnny Cash show. Oh, no way. And that, that one got really pissed off Charlie McCoy. Because, <clears throat> first of all, we were working all the time, right? And and, and and Charlie says, look, we, uh, Johnny wants to have us on his TV show. Because Johnny would have these. Well, he would bring in Neil Young. He would bring in Lunderod's daddy. Uh, Eric Clapton, you know? And, um, and so, the deal was, <laughs> we had made the record a year before or something, and we were trying to figure out when we could get together and to rehearse, and it was impossible. Everybody's playing sessions all over town, different studios, different producers. By the way, if if I were at three or four sessions in a day, I would play with three or four different drummers. We were never hired as a rhythm section like we were at Muscle Shoals. Well a few people did.
0: Yeah, that's woke so, that so you're but you were really floating around with Butry, Kerrigan, maybe Carl T. Himmel or Kenny Malone. You were finding different guys every day.
1: Yeah, and Buddy Harmon.
0: Buddy Harmon. Please I don't want to leave anybody
1: out i played on all those Everly Brothers records and all those Brenda Lee records and all those Patsy Klein records. And but he was a master, okay. And uh, but but so so but that's the way it was in Nashville. Everybody knew the culture of how you play, how you listen, and what your job is. And, and the only thing that changed was the artist and the type of song it was. And when Owen Bradley uh, uh, put me on his list Most of the producers had five bass players, and they didn't really... Number one might be their favorite guy, but number five is going to be great, too. And then they'd have five drummers, five bass players, five keyboard guys, 20 guitar players who can do anything. (laughs) 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 right, Right? And uh, this was, are you
0: saying this was like by 68 or this 65? They already had
1: I swear it wasn't 65. No, it stays that way. Oh my god, because because the producers would say to their secretaries, uh, well, I don't know, Chet Atkins would say to his secretary, Oh, I'm going to be doing this album with Skeeter Davis in in two weeks. You go ahead and book the band, you know, and uh, and and if, if 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 it was more than a rhythm section chet would tell her it's going we'll have strings or we'll have voices there we'll have so she'd get a full layout but she'd go ahead and call the rhythm section i uh, King Harkin was number one for chet Atkins. because chet loved the way he dressed <laughs> 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 he, was, he was very dapper okay he was very collegiate looking and uh, and uh briggs and i were a little rougher around the edges we wore jeans and uh yeah.
0: I mean, you were always grabbing the legal pads, and you were the you, but you were you dressed you dressed casual for it,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: casual funk, you know, casual funk.
1: That
0: is the greatest line
1: ever. Uh, uh, once you see pictures of us, uh, we looked unkempt, you know, my hair was, I needed a good hair, oh
0: man, we would have had such a ball, man. This is unbelievable, and um, and, and, uh,
1: and, uh, But, but but, uh, but yeah, that's the way it was. And, uh, and, and, and I have to tell you, I was trying to think if there were any bad drummers. They could all play, you know. And they all knew what to
0: play. What about James Isbell?
1: Oh, Isbell was great. He, he didn't quite make the top
0: He side. wasn't in that top five. I mean, I, there's well, like...
1: But uh, there were places like... He worked a lot of the Acuff Rose stuff. Uh, the, the new beats. They, you know, they... I didn't play on bread and butter and I said I did. <laughs> it in the book. Really? I played I played on the hit to follow it up. Something about that was a bass part. And something about running back to her arms or something. <laughs> you know. But but Isabel would play on that stuff and uh... What
0: about what about there's another cat here I mean this guy falls into the to the to your neck of the woods, Bobby Dyson.
1: Oh, Bobby Dyson was an excellent fender bass player. Yes, and Chet loved him. He played a lot of stuff for Chet. Um, I'll tell you, the bass players' the top five is basically Bobby Moore could do everything. Hundred percent. Bobby was the greatest acoustic bass player in Nashville. He could play everything from jazz to, to Brenda Lee to Patsy Cline. Uh, he could do all the country stuff. But Owen recognized his talents while he was still a teenager and, and sent him up to uh, Juilliard for summer where he took – Arco, took Arco. Yeah, he learned to play Arco. Yeah,
0: this was the, the greatest best- story of all time. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and he came back home, and boy, he, he, and, and he was driven. <laughs> he was a son of a bitch. i got to tell you, Bobby Moore. Oh, <laughs> I, the first time I saw Bobby Moore, he's coming out of the back of the Columbia studio. And I'd met most of all the bass players, right? Oh nice guy. Hi Norbert, I'm glad you're here, you know. Uh we need somebody to really kill that fender bass, but but I but I'm playing a boosting bass on more than half of my sessions. So I see Bobby coming out. I said, Hey Bobby, Norbert Putnam, I just want to tell you I love you. It's a pleasure meeting you. You know what he said? Fuck you. Yeah. And he got in his car and drove off. <laughs> <laughs> That is so classic. <laughs> and so I asked Carol Bradley about it. He goes, Oh, God, he says, if you, if you get anybody's business, it's going to be bodies because he's a terrible Fender bass player. And uh, and you can really play the Fender. Sure enough. I, not only did I get a lot of but I got a lot of the sight reading stuff. Right. Gary Mancini
0: came down. Well, there. no, that, that is, th- that to me, did, I, I'm curious if, if in, in your electric playing, well, there's another cat, Tommy Allsup. Oh, Tommy was a guitar player. He was a guitar player. He, he didn't play, uh, you know, he's he's on, this, this is one cat. Did you ever work with Johnny Carver?
1: Is he a singer or
0: something? Yeah, t- uh, tie a yellow ribbon around an old oak tree. I mean, it's all your, I mean, this was 73, you were already, Kind of not. Oh. <clears throat> this was at a. Oh, I'm, I'm,
1: yeah. I'm not really playing much at that time. I guess. Absolutely. You know, played, only played six years in Nashville. And uh, and and, and then sporadically. Well,
0: that's what I, I guess. That was the point. Is that I mean? Okay, so Elvis was, you know, for the King, puttts going to go and play no matter what. What what was the? <clears throat> obviously, outside of you having to play something that nobody else could at the session, what motivated you to actually pick up the bass after a while, or you just be, you just were comfortable in that in that production mode?
1: Oh, no, no, no. It was, it was pure greed.
0: <laughs> okay. I dig. No, I dig. I dig.
1: No, it was a combination of desperation and greed, okay? Because by uh, nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy, 1970, I'm I'm playing 600 record dates a year.
0: Oh my god, 600?
1: Yeah, and, you know, and um, holy mama. And, and we take I'm taking a couple of weeks off, <laughs> so it's based on a 50 week year. Oh my you know? god. And but so so I am now in the top five, and I'm working three sessions a day, maybe four sessions for two days a week, right? <laughs> And so, uh, that's, uh, so I got four times, well, 15, I'm doing, this, uh, averaging about 17 sessions a week, but, but if Elvis was in town, I'm probably doing more than that, I'm doing 20. Sure. And, and sure. there's time and it goes, he goes late, you know?
0: I mean, dude, you guys are, I mean, he'd be eating that cheeseburger and fries and he'd wolf it down. You hadn't even taken a bite <laughs> of your food yet, dude.
1: Well, I tell you, uh,
0: <laughs> I mean, you lived. Gra- I mean, this is. Anyway, go ahead, well, please. Well, first of all, yeah.
1: my, I remember Briggs and I talking. Uh, 69, David and I, you know, we were like brothers. Yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, we would have dinner with our wives on a Saturday night. And the wives would sit over there and talk, and David and I'd be at the other end of the table talking. <laughs> much across the table, right? Yeah. And I remember a conversation. I said, David my back is killing me from playing that damn acoustic bass and sitting on a stool. You know, you can't stand up and play all day and all night. You sit. So a bass player's got a stool. Guitar players are all sitting in chairs. Right? Right. They're not going to stand up and play. You know? Nah, totally. We made our, and all of us had a little bit of a bunch, you know, a little, we got a little chubby around the middle, sitting there, <laughs> uh, and my, my, my back is killing me from that damn acoustic bass because it's, it's, it puts you in an odd position because your left hand, left arm is up high, you know, on, on the neck of the bass, up high, and then you reach down below, so you're twisting your body, and you really have to pull that string to get a good sound.
0: Absolutely, dude. Yeah, you had those calluses. You broke. You had the- your blood blisters
1: everywhere. Oh, uh, I had a callus on my. My index finger, my right hand. That ran all the, way the, the down below my my nail all the way up to the second second uh, part of my finger. Well, just, so, I
0: mean, just dude, if if I you didn't put that in the first book, if you can take a lot,
1: it, a lot of stuff I didn't put in there. You no know, what I'm
0: saying for the new book, you have to talk about how big that callus was. Well, it, it, it,
1: it, but the way you do it, that whole that that lower part. The lower two thirds of your index finger, straight with the string, right? Mm. It rolled the string off all that flesh as it comes down. Right. Here. Now on my left hand, my little finger, it's got a big hunk of meat hanging off my little finger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. It's, it, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> well anyway.
0: Now I want to go back. So your the back what does Briggs say? Did he like, play the electric? What did he say? You're like my uh, back.
1: I gotta tell you, so my back is killing me. <laughs> but I'm not sure I want to uh, over making a hundred grand a year. I know. And our wives are driving new cars,
0: having and a ball. They're, yeah,
1: they're becoming professional
0: shoppers, <laughs> real, right, dude?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you couldn't spend that kind of money in 19.
0: That's that. That's so, much, dude. You had. I mean, that is insane, dude. I, 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 I guess I would assume. The only cats that were doing that kind of not just work, but just bringing in that dough was like Purdy and Rainy and I mean, whoever else. I mean, I, I there were not that many cats doing that many sessions raking well, in. Cat,
1: on every session, there was one guy who was a leader, and he was usually an older guy like Grady Martin.
2: Oh, my God. Hero. And, and
1: if he's a leader, he's pulling in 200,000 a year. Okay.
0: In 69. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my
1: God, man.
0: Putnam was on top of the world. Your back's killing you, though, dude. It doesn't make, if you're in pain, it doesn't mean anything.
1: Listen, I bought a house in 1970 on a hillside, three and a half acres with a wooden uh, it was a cedar and a oh glass house. Oh, my God. Hanging hillside by a great architect for
0: $60,000. Sounds about right. Now, that's, that's so freaking brilliant. Unbelievable, man.
1: And uh, you could buy a you could buy a nine eleven for seven seventy two hundred dollars, a Mercedes sedan for five grand, oh my God. a Cadillac for thirty five hundred something like that. You know? <laughs> a player, you know, the guitar players all drove these big Cadillacs that had a giant truck.
0: Right. So they have their mandolins and their t- string guitars. They could bring all their their equipment. It was Carol
1: Bradley? Before... Bradley said. I got 14 cases in the trunk (laughs) If they want a mandolin, they want, uh, you name it. And I got it, Matthew. I'll just run out and get it. The other thing was, if you play two different instruments, like, if, I would, they would tell me to bring both basses, like with Bobby Goldsboro, I played the big upright bass on all his ballads, like Honey and Little Green Mm -hmm. Apples, hand in hand, that kind of stuff. And then I'd get the Fender bass out when it rocked out. And then I got a double, which which kicked my uh, earnings up from, I can't remember what scale it was, but probably kicked it up by a third.
0: You got double scale, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, and so the guitar players were constantly getting doubles. Because they say, I'd like to play uh, Dober on this.
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. They could, Yeah, they might. I mean, they uh, could play three or uh, four. Yeah.
1: And a producer would say, Oh, I guess he's got a great idea. <laughs> but, but so, so I'm telling David that, I, that we got to do something. And he said, Well, let's. Briggs had a great idea. He said, Why don't we learn to write these country songs? I said, Well, there's not much to learn. It's always about, you know, <laughs> don't come home with drinking, but you know, loving of
2: your mind, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Right.
1: And I would show uh, Loretta Lynn's song.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: As a matter of fact, I came in to play for her one day. You did. And early in the morning, and she's back there making coffee at Bradley's Bar. I walk back there. She says, oh, who are you? I said, I said I'm Norbert Putnam. I'm filling in for Bobby Moore this morning. Oh. She said, do you know who I am? I said, I think I do. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, "I'm the girl who wrote that song about don't come home with drinking with fucking on your mind." Oh well, God. I turned all shades of
0: red. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, right. I was
1: only about twenty-three. <laughs> 23.
0: What a woman, man!
1: <laughs> but she just laughed. He caught me, you know.
0: <laughs> that's so great,
1: man. <laughs> I got to tell you, all of those people were great people. Well,
0: and that's, that's so- what it's. I mean, it's just. I, I mean, I don't know, man. Like, I, I guess. Do, do, you know, a lot of cats would call it the music racket, but in the two plus hours that we've done interviews, I can't. W- w- it was it a dirty business in Nashville? It sounds to me like people were. I mean, oh no, no! Oh god! No, it was the cleanest
1: thing you've ever seen. That's see,
0: that's that's you were blessed because
1: yeah. And the reason we left Muscle Shoals is because we, we 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 had a union in Birmingham. All of the major labels had deals with the AF- AFL, CIO, or whatever it was, that they would only use uh, union musicians on the recordings, right? Right. And when we did that first record down here with Arthur Alexander, and Rick goes to Nastral and makes a deal with a guy to sell it to Dot Records, they said, not only do we need a union contract, but uh, this thing's in mono. <sighs> the records got to be in stereo. Mm-hmm. we didn't have any stereo gear but but Noel Ball his, his buddy up there who was a pilot flew down here in a twin engine airplane picked us up and took us to Birmingham where we signed a backdated contract and he paid for us to join the union okay wow so now we're in wow. the union but but Rick Ball would make a deal with the people who came in it was $45 for three hours we would play nine hours and signed for three hours <laughs> God! And then Ray Stevens came down here in the second and third year and said, you know, you, if you guys, if you get your sight reading together, you're good enough to be the young rhythm section.
2: Baseball. That's right.
1: I, I'm, I'm parsing these words here. But, uh, and he went on to tell us, he said, now, you know, if you become popular players, and I think you will be, you can play three or four of those record dates a day. At that point the scale had gone up to about fifty dollars every three hours. And we're saying are you trying to tell me I could earn two hundred dollars in one day?
0: <laughs> but you know Dude, I, that's like a that's like that's like that's like in today's money that's oh, like seven hundred fifty those worth a thousand bucks.
1: Well, let's see. Well, that hundred, in that 1970 would probably be what?
0: Uh, dude, I don't. I'm not a math guy, but it, I mean, it's got to be over a well, million dollars.
1: Uh, well, it's, I have to tell you, uh, that Porsche nine eleven I bought new on the showroom floor for seventy two hundred dollars. <laughs> Twenty <laughs> years later, that same looking car, a little better engine, maybe, was seventy two thousand dollars.
0: Twenty years? Went, how many? How many? Uh, how many years? Twenty. Yeah. Yeah about like, like late like late eighties pretty much. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that thing was up there in the 70s. yeah. Oh and it was quicker than that. As a matter of fact the <laughs> the first Porsche I bought in seventy. It was a silver hardtop. And I went to Targa the next year and I went down there to get a seventy one out of Targa. And I had to pay seven hundred dollars boot.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> I got called to play a session at at uh Star day King, King Records out of uh, Cincinnati.
0: I'm looking here, Gusto Deluxe, Starday King, Power Pat. It's unbelievable you just dropped that name. Federal, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, anyway, they did a bunch of crazy people, and uh, Donovan was coming in, right? And uh, oh, that, that was a that was a, a very prophetic day for me because there was a young engineer from England, Marty Lewis. Who came in to engineer Donovan, and it's by me, Donovan, and I hired Marty Lewis. Marty <laughs> King was a... I don't I'm really not to print, print this, but it it was not exact state of the art studio. And usually when we went out there, the sound wasn't so good. But this Marty Lewis guy. It was stellar with him twisting the knobs. May,
0: you know, that's really, that's so, you yeah, know, I remember I just have all these Red Sovine records on that, on Star Day. But I, you're saying he just had the magic, he had the magic touch, this cat, Louis. Yeah,
1: and I didn't, and by the way, they did a lot of country, but they also did a lot of crazy pop rock stuff. Really? And you know, r stuff. Really? Yeah, I well, they had James Brown, didn't
0: they? Well, no, the, uh, yeah, you're talking about the kid being just King itself. Yeah, King did. Yeah.
1: Well, those guys would come down to recording Nashville and do horns there and go back to Cincinnati. Wow. And, you know, there was a side of Nashville. Like, I made a great living without playing country dates. Because there were some guys that could kill them. Bobby Moore, Junior Husky. Junior Husky was down at the Opry every Saturday night backing up Moretta, and he would remember everything he played on the records. you know?
2: Right, right. And and
1: when he played country, it swung,
0: as they say. Dude, I I just want to hear that, man, so badly. It
1: was was vanilla
0: when I played country, okay? It was not. Yeah, but no, it was was the Putnam version of country. I mean, Husky was Jr. was just on a different, I mean, he was really playing it. He was playing the real country.
1: He was was the best heard, and Bobby could do it, too, okay?
0: Definitely. Uh, anybody you want? Those two cats were one and one A. Uh, is there anybody else you want to throw into that conversation? It's. I mean, they're, they're like the holy grail. Oh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's
1: a guy from Birmingham, Alabama, who was three years my senior. You can
0: never remember this cat's name.
1: Uh, yeah, Henry strelecky
0: Henry oh, Strellecky.
1: Strellecky played on Bob Dylan stuff.
0: Totally, dude.
1: Also, I think he played bass on uh, Pretty Woman for Roy Or. But here's the deal: Trelecki, uh, uh he had studied bass as a kid. He could sight read anything. He could bow with the best. And Chet loved him because uh, he could play jazz. Oh my God! Okay, so he, so he'd go through the symphony gigs with Chet, and and there's there's uh, there's records that was done with the Boston Pops with Kerrigan from Muscle Shoals. Oh my God! hitting the drum part with Henry Strakke and Chet Atkins and the Boston Pops like he was great.
0: I will never pass on that album again. I cannot believe that. Uh, Bobby Moore, Jr. I, I just don't want to, the, the 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 old country guys when Putnam rolled into town. Like that's that's the key, right? Like who were those? Who were a couple of those cats?
1: Well, I didn't hurt any of those country guys because there's probably four or five great country bass players. Right. Okay. Besides Jr. Uh, uh, and Bobby, could do anything. You know, Bobby was, you know, he could he could do the pop stuff. He could read. That's that's Bobby on all the Brindleys.
0: Oh, my God, dude, he is ridiculous. I just want to be very clear. I'm looking at this album, Hello Blues by Floyd Kramer, and the liner notes are written by David Halberstam, <laughs> which is so insane. And it, Randy Randolph is on this before he became Boots. Carl, Carl Garvin was on... Trumpet, and then of course it's the top flight: Buddy Harmon, Bobby Moore, Chet, a- and Hank Garland. On this album, it's unreal, dude. It's all blues. Oh, yeah. 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 Well,
1: well, listen, I get—I I recorded with boots too.
0: Well, I—that's—I like, I, I was going to ask you. recorded with boots?
1: No, but uh, I did a boots—boots boots with strings album.
0: I'm going to find but that out. I'm, I've seen that album the way, all the time. Yeah. I
1: have to tell you, I think I think you did two or three boots with strings on them. <laughs> because uh, he played beautifully, okay? And uh, one of them, the one I played on, um, they wrote the rhythm section like uh, George uh, George Shearing style. Sure. You know, yeah. Shearing would have the vibes, doubling the guitar part.
0: Absolutely. Oh,
1: 100%. Well, well, I did one of those records of boots like that. It was great fun, Okay. And uh <laughs> I think Bill Purcell was a pianist, uh wow, uh, wow, but anyway, well, it, what would happen a lot of times though we'd we cut just the rhythm tracks, and then the Fred Foster would put the strings on the next day or something, you know, yeah. but uh, I' gotta tell you, I, I love my life in Nashville because it was not the country life,
2: you're right, right.
1: You know, I'm playing all the pop stuff uh, that Bobby can't do. Okay? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I, I think I would pr- probably was pretty. I, I pretty much had the Fender bass covered at first call. Pretty much on that. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, if it was if it was pop uh, or rock and roll or a weird. I get
0: the well, I mean, this is why I love North That was the, the, you know what? The, there's one more. This is the guy who I originally asked to connect me with you, and he goes way back to my. <clears throat> he was with my dad at Jewish summer camp in upstate New York. The the mm-hmm. albums, my favorite albums, Dave, David Buskin.
1: Really?
0: Yeah, he, he, he was, uh, he, my dad and him are very I, cool. I
1: produced I produce
0: that. Album. I, dude, it's, I have it right here. I'm looking at it right now. There's also this country porn album. It's insane. Oh,
1: no, no. It's a piece, piece of trash. Throw
0: that away. <laughs> no, I'm just keeping it for the cover, dude. I know it didn't work out musically, <laughs> but I, I just, I'm like, this is insane.
1: Oh, it, was, it was an embarrassing
0: thing. <laughs> Why? What happened, dude? What was so embarrassing about it?
1: I'll tell you about that in private. Sometimes.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Hey, listen. You know what? I don't want that to ever appear in print. <laughs> no, it's it, you know it's fine. Listen. But,
1: but David yeah. Buskin.
0: Yeah, Buskin, please. When,
1: when gray geese fly across the northern That's sky. That's right, dude. Something like that, right? Bands playing, and Spooner's on piano, and we let one down, and Penn singing, and Spooner played all that going to the last chorus. A really great blues, man. And said, so "Well, I'll come in the control room." And I said, "Spooner, that lick, put it before every course. That is our signature lick." Wow. Uh, well, well, could you play that for me so I could hear what I did? <laughs> so we played it for him. He said, "Could you play it again?" We played it again. I just don't know how I did that. That's the kind of keyboard guy was. I just don't know how I did that. He never could play it again. And it was, it was <laughs> you,
0: know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, to- I mean, no, you, you can't, I mean, you try something like that, it, it just fell through him. You can't do it that way anymore, you know? It's like taking that the perfect soul. Well,
1: all great, no, all great pianists can do anything they've ever done. How many times do you want to do it? It's just, he was that kind of a guy. Yeah, he, Spooner he was. He couldn't hear the lick and he just played it. He couldn't figure out how, what the fingering was. I honestly think I could have gone out and played it, okay? Or went ahead and cut the track without it. And uh, But it was sort of, you know, that's the kind of guy. Spooner never got into studio work because of that reason. He might do a little something, but he could never repeat it. And uh, he was just kind of a musical dummy, you know. He could feel something once, but normally if you play something back to the guy that he just played... Oh, immediately, that's how he did
0: it. <laughs> did, you, did you ever cross paths with, uh, it's funny, it just came into my head, this drummer, uh, the band Little Feet. Did you ever cross paths with Lowell George?
1: We met some of those guys when the area code came out to uh, play at the film rest. They came backstage.
0: Who came back, who what was, who was out, who, you were out there with who?
1: Well, Ari Code 615.
0: Oh, you played the film? I was going to say, because because the drummer, Richie Hayward, is that kind of player. He could never play the same thing, uh, and he was incredible. I mean, Spooner's incredible. I, I mean, he brings me to tears with some of his stuff. But it's like that musical uh, amnesia where you can't repeat it, you know?
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate, because the way we make records... You know, if a great keyboard guy, great guitar player comes up with something going into a chorus, we probably want to use it as a hook line for all the choruses to come up. Right. right. And uh, and if you can't do something like that, you can't play record dates. Because we sat there with Spooner for about 45 minutes trying to see if he could recapture that song. And he never got it. It's sort of a downer, you know? Because the guys that I worked with, <laughs> you know, uh, every guy in the band could have played that way. Right? Uh, but, but it's difficult to work with someone who's just a soulful guy who may or may not, you know, a, 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 a spooner would say, I don't really hear any piano in this. Well, it's, just go over there and sit at the sofa and have a good time. You know, I don't ever recall a great pianist saying that to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they always had more ideas. I was at a session one day with Old Bradley
2: mm-hmm. in the early
1: days when I got to Nashville. And it was the 18th Floyd Kramer's on piano mm-hmm. and playing acoustic oh, bass. God, okay. Because Bobby Moore was already booked and couldn't make the date. And so it was it was Owen's rhythm section. And, and, and oh, by the way, Owen had me play with him at the Me Country Club. And we played all of this music I didn't know. And that story was in the book, too. Where he said to me afterwards, he said, Well, kid, you found most of that. <laughs> and we're playing all the 30s and 40s shit, you know. And uh, and he told me, we stopped for a drink, he said, You got great ears. You're, he said, That was difficult music. You found most of it. And that was the test, okay? Wow. And he said, I'm going to make you third base of Deco. Let me tell you how it works. Bobby Moore can do anything. That's him on Brenda Lee, Patsy Klein, right? Right. And Bobby can play jazz. And He said, I sent him up to Juilliard for summer so he can now arco the bass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, He's and an I, arco cat I, now. Yeah, I do. Because that, that happened to us in Nashville, you know? Really? and. Oh, well, let me tell you, yeah. if you're playing, just from when I went up there, 70% of your work is going to be a piece bass. For sure. The Fender bass was something the rockers did and the R&B guys did. But, boy, uh, Owen Brownlee's told me, don't bring the Fender bass. We don't have Muscle Cheryl's shit on <laughs> <laughs> well, He said, come over. Next thing I went over to, Cal- uh, to his Columbia, he said, De- no, DECA. He said a DECA. DECA, yeah. He handed me two dozen albums that had Bobby Moore on them. I said, I'll make an album in three three-hour sessions. On Monday, we do a 10-to-1 and 2-to-5. That gives me eight sides. We come back the next morning from 10-to-1, and we've got 12 sides. We master the record on Wednesday and send the parts to the plants. Oh, it's mixed live to three-track as it goes down. There is no remix. Think about that. The next time you listen to Brenda Lee, uh, Patsy Klein records The engineer is balancing it live To two track and three track
0: Well that's the genius of it What about What are your memories of the Lonnie Mack session?
1: <clears throat> well I arranged a couple of tracks for him uh, When he was on Electra
0: Yeah The Hills of Indiana It's an amazing album I had no idea you played bass on that And yeah, you did the did string bass. arrangements And you did the horn arrangements
1: well, I remember doing horn arrangements and some strings. Uh, I wrote a cello part that was really nice, a French horn something. Oh my gosh! And I did but I didn't produce it. Then, they, then he goes over to Capitol, and the guys at Capitol loved me because I was doing the Pousset Dart band from Boston. Do you remember those guys? Yep, yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Now, those are great records, and we couldn't get get it promoted to Capitol in L.A. And they asked me if I'd do Lonnie and I had a good relationship with Lonnie and so he comes into Nashville and uh, we got a good budget and we're working on a record he goes uh, how much money are they paying you to do this? <laughs> I said well it's, uh, I get about I get $35,000 and I get three to five points. You're shitting me he said. I, I said is that a lot of money to you? Well damn right for all you do all you do is sell right and make a few Say a few things. I said, so are you unhappy with me?
2: (laughs) Yeah, right.
1: He said, well, I think you're being overpaid. I said, well, look, I said, I'm sorry that you didn't have any voice in this. And, uh, I said, let's just try to finish the record. You know, so we finished the record and I called out the Capitol and I said, I don't want my name on this record. I said, why not? I said, well, he hated me after after he found out what you were paying me, which was what a normal producer would have done. Okay, sure, wasn't that much money. And and, and I'm trying to remember the the guy out there I really liked, it, the English guy who ran ran the pop division out there. I said, okay, say produced from Man, it was produced by Manta Trevoron. That's my name backwards. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Dude, that wait. Be- Wait, I'm I'm confused. Why was Lonnie getting? Was that just typical? I mean, cats just didn't know how to advocate for themselves. Why wasn't he getting paid what he thought he deserved? Oh
1: no, it didn't change his deal at all. You know?
0: No, but I'm saying, like, well, when, I, when when I, why was he so stunned that you were you? That wasn't a lot of money. That was just standard. Why why did he Why did he well, go? got
1: to realize this guy this guy lived in an old school bus. I did not know he that. He cut a hole in the ceiling for a wood burning, uh, a coal burning fire. Oh my god! And, and and oh, and the school bus had big lights on top of the cab. And he was telling me how they park out in the wilderness somewhere, and if they needed meat, he would turn the lights on, and drive into the forest and shoot a deer.
0: You're you're like deer this is there. I mean this is during his career as a, as as a lead, as a band as a making records.
1: Well, yeah, because he wasn't making that many records. And, uh, you're, you're right about
0: that. You're right about that.
1: You know, and, and things were not that good for him. <clears throat> and I don't know what capital paid him. Maybe they weren't paying him like they should, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> but he sure as hell didn't like the fact. And let's see, what year would that have been? I don't know.
0: 71.
1: That was a- 71. Oh,
0: it was early on then. Yeah.
1: Well,. And you—you oh, you were spot
0: incredible. on. You know, you, you—you nailed it. It was electric. I want to go back to the DECA thing for a minute, uh, because um, Owen Bradley pulled you in and was like, "You're going to be third base." Who was so? It was Bobby Moore. Who was the second base?
1: Junior Husky was the great dude.
0: I've been listening. Listen, since I talked to you last time and did the interview, the two guys that I'm obsessed with that you hit me to, Ferlin Husky, and Grady Martin. Both those guy, dude, Ferlin Husky is a legend. And you're telling me he was playing a bass fiddle? He wasn't playing a Fender bass for the most.
1: No, Ferlin Husky was a singer.
0: That right?
1: Okay. Uh,
0: uh, 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 I mean, I have his Husky. records as a singer, but but I mean, no,
1: he didn't play the bass. He never played the
0: bass. He never played the bass. No, no,
1: no. no. Husky played the bass. I just told you his name. What was it? Just, you know. Husky. You talking
0: about Bobby Moore?
1: No, Bobby Moore and Husky were the two. Bobby could play country too. Okay, right. He started out as a country bassist. but uh, Owen had, took him under his tutelage and uh, taught him how to read music and uh, taught him how to play the Great American Songbook. And he sent him up to he, met, he knew some people at Juilliard. So I went up there for three months and studied uh, technique and arco. Ball. That's
0: right, right.
1: Because what would happen to me, since 70% of my work is the acoustic bass, I had a bow, but I had rosin. The rosin had to live with me because the summers were so hot. <laughs> <Natural>. <laughs> the rosin would melt. So the rosin came oh, in and, and set on my music stand. Oh, my. Had to bow the, and, and listen, I never had to bow more than the intro and the ending, right? The strings would be over there 20 feet from me. And I'd play buzz, 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 buzz. And then it's a card, you know. And and so I had to get rid of the bow without making any noise. You couldn't drop it on the floor, you know. And then at the very end, a lot of times the strings come back and I get to go out, you know, and you do that. But well, when I got up there, it was more like buzz, squeak, buzz, buzz, squeak, buzz, <laughs> buzz. And I'm on a cocktail party out in Bellevue. Tupper Saucy. I was in the neon filler mine with Tupper Saucy. And Tupper had studied piano with Peterson. He wrote a symphony, he wrote a great uh, a concerto, piano concerto, the National Symphony played. My friend uh, Bill. Cell played the piano part. He was a true genius, okay? And he was married to a really wealthy Bell-Mead woman. they had a big house, and I'm out there at one of their cocktail parties, and this bass player over there in the corner with a couple of other instruments. And this son of a bitch, he's the greatest bass player I've ever seen. And I'm just I'm just standing there watching this son of a bitch. And when they took a break, I went over to him. <clears throat> I said I said I said, uh, well, I, I, said I introduced myself oh you are that new kid's getting all the work in town <coughs> he, he said uh, he said well I'm uh, I'm, I'm uh, I'll think of his name I, I've, since I took all the antibiotics I have trouble with
0: names you're doing fine man you're doing fine
1: but anyway anyway I said do you give lessons well I don't know what do you need to learn I need help with arco. Oh, he said, well, he said, you play a lot of Fender bass, too, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, I just got a Fender bass. I don't know even how to hold the damn thing. What if I come out to your house, I'll bring my Fender bass, and uh, I'll show you how how to rise at the bow properly. I can teach you how to, I can stop all your squeaks pretty fast, Okay. So he comes out to my house, and I'm living out on the lake. You know, I'm making $100,000 a year now. <laughs> and and, uh, <laughs> and I'm sorry. he comes in. Oh, by the way, he plays first bass for the Houston Symphony Orchestra.
0: Oh, my. Are you kidding me?
1: And so he comes out to my house, and, I, and, I, and the only time I got to sleep a little late was on Saturday. And my wife says, he's already down there in your pool room. I had a big pool table, all my music gear, and, in the pool room and I hear him warming up with Fly to the Bumblebee oh shit I walked in and I said I "I really appreciate if you wouldn't start like that I couldn't play that in a million years you
2: know
1: (laughs) and he laughed he laughed and he said Norbert you know I go down I want you to come down uh, I go down to the Opry in the summer when I'm home and I do fiddle tunes up in the higher registers Higher registers, that's down there at the end of the neck, okay? And he could do that in tune. He'd play all these fiddle tunes. <laughs> oh. Three octaves up, okay? <laughs> and so he looked at my bow. He says, well, I can see what's wrong. You had the wrong bow. He said, I got to get you a bow and uh, and get you the right kind of rosin and show you how, how to put the rosin to the bow and it won't squeak anymore. And so we got his Fender bass out, and I showed him how to hold it. And boy, it was a real problem for him, you know, because you hold it like a guitar. And he wanted to hold it with his, so it was upright. And so we worked on that a little bit. The next week, he came out and had a new bowl for me, a proper German bowl. That cost me some money. And uh, But he showed me it was necessary and how to get the, the, the proper amount of, uh, of, of torque on the bow you started the ball, you know, and it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. I just had the wrong ball, you know, and so, and so the e fixed my, my boy was really so natural. A deep bench of incredible players.
0: I mean, that is like I'm trying to think about this one record. I uh, Floyd Kramer record that I just found is called uh, "Hello Blues." It's so it, it's it's the Jazz Cats. Uh, Rand Boots Randolph is on this. is early like six, nineteen sixty. When did yeah. you? I mean, uh, it, Kerrigan. I'm, I'm trying to think about who was pl- Buddy Harmon was playing drums. I think I can't.
1: Yeah, no. Here that no, would have been Buddy Harmon yeah. on the drums. Yes, Bobby Moore. And that
0: Bobby Moore, but, right?
1: And it would have been Hank Garland and probably Grady Martin on
0: guitars. Dude, Hank, go, tell me you yeah. went on the road with Hank. Did you ever go on tour with Hank Garland? No.
1: Listen, he crashed his car. Oh, my God. At the end of 1964, we came to town in the early 65, and he never played again.
0: Get out of here. I did not know that. It makes, sense know that? Because it makes sense because he did a bunch of records, but then you didn't hear from him again.
1: No. The, the then guy... Uh, Harold Bradley and I talked about it. Right. And Grady talked about it. He could do anything from blues. to He played He played on some pressing sessions. We did some great rock and roll guitar. Oh, wow. And then he had the jazzers come down from New York. You know, a real jazz bassist and jazz drummer. And, and, and the, the guy played vibes. What was his name? Gary Bird. <laughs> Gary
0: Bird. Yeah, Gary Bird.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they made records in Nashville. That's right and Harold Bradley he's the a bitch would start out in the solo <laughs> and you can just see you can see he's getting in the air. he's not going to be able to get out of this and he would play his way out of it
0: that is so beautiful that you just said that man so you, you that was 60, 65 65 that was like 67
1: yeah. well meanwhile then Grady has to take over you know and, and Grady was another one who
0: could do anything. Dude, man, this this album is unbelievable. It's called Instrumentally Yours on Decca. As far as I know, you might be playing bass on there. I don't think Bobby's playing bass on it. Well,
1: uh, but another thing about Grady Boyd, yeah. he was a great bass player.
0: Really <laughs> of course he was. No, you told me that. Yeah, I mean, it's un... But, but hold on, so I just want to be clear. The, we still can't remember the cat's name who was... The, the the cat who asked you for for Fender bass to hold the bass we don't we can't remember
1: that cat's name. No, but I've got it here somewhere. I'll send it to you.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: If you don't get it in a few days, uh, send text text me. Okay.
0: I will. Yeah, I will.
1: Hey, listen, I can't keep up with my emails anymore. I've got sixteen thousand emails that I don't listen
0: to. Yeah, no texting is is much. Uh, you wait. Know, you told me the legendary story about Waylon. Oh,
1: oh, oh. Yeah. Well, the country bassist was Junior Husky.
0: Junior? So Junior, Junior. No, so Furlan was a singer. Junior Husky was the bass player.
1: He was the country bassist. He, he played the opera every weekend. That's right. Okay. That's right. And, and, and all, all, the, all the country people, he recorded with most of them. And when they'd come out to do their, their latest song, he would remember what he played. And he'd walk out there and do the bass part he played on the record. He was one of about four or five bass players that were backstage waiting for the act to come out that they'd worked with. Isn't it great? And his son becomes on a very famous bassist. Junior died when he was forty-two or something like that. And his son was working with Allison Krauss and people like that. Sure. He died when he was forty-two. No. <clears throat> so I'm getting, I'm getting a, a, an insurance policy. I'm, I'm working with Gilfan, Renner and Feldman. Opened an office in Nashville. That was the first act. You know, they were the big LA, LA firm, New York firm, right? And uh, so uh, they were taking out some insurance for myself, life insurance. And they said, "You got to go down. <clears throat> you got to go down for a little." Uh, Checkup. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> a little checkup on Tuesday. Go to the hospital and they're going to see this doctor. So I go over there. There's a little waiting room. I go up to the desk. And she said, uh, can I help you? I said, yes, I have a <laughs> <laughs> and She says, uh, what is your name? I said, Norbert Pondup. She leaned back in her chair. And she said, your name is Norbert Putnam? I said, Yes. She said, We have a cat named Norman Putnam. No, stop. I said, what? Stop. <laughs> I, said, well, I said, what is your name? She said, well I'm, so, I'm Junior Husky's wife. Oh. Well it was it was the son, the junior husky the center coat.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Well, guess what? He was listening to my plan when Code six one five. Absolutely, and he thought I was, and, and he named his cat after me because he wanted his cat to be cool. He said,
0: "Well, I don't blame well, him. I named my that cat."
1: Bizarre thing you ever heard of in your life? No, I mean that his th- wife never knew why the cat was named and never asked.
0: <laughs> we have a cat named Norbert Putnam. That's the greatest line <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I gotta ask you. You t- you you told me the greatest Christofferson story about him uh, emptying cigarette uh, ash ashtrays and in the restaurant. Uh, eventually, you got him into the studio. At first, it was like, "What is this?" And then all of a sudden, it became, uh, you know, he was he was down in New Orleans. But what about well? Do you have like a memory of of like an early uh, memory of of your work when you worked with Waylon Jennings?
1: Uh, well, no, because, uh, who the hell, I think, did Chet produce him? Who was his producer? Yeah, I'm going to look that up. I just, it it's a, a, yeah, it was Chet. Okay, I wasn't Chet's favorite produ- uh, bassist. I was like third or fourth on his call list.
0: Okay. <laughs> was it, was it just the style or, I mean, what was that about? I mean, I mean, people are
1: naming no, no, their no, cats no, no. after you. No, okay, there was a, there was a bass player from Birmingham. Who was two or three years older than I was.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And Chet brought him to Nashville because he could sight read real well. And uh and Chet was playing a lot of symphony gigs, And and Nashville needed another. A junior Husky couldn't read music, okay? Right. Bobby Moore could. Right. But uh and, and I could. But uh, for the most part, none of the country guys could read music. And so Chet brought up uh, from Birmingham, Alabama. Oh god! I'll you his name
0: in a second. No, I'm going to look it up right now. This is important. But basically, yeah. he yeah. He, but you, were, you 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 read music. But I mean, it's okay. Not everybody's just, you know, the you know, not everybody's best friends. But he even with that, he still wanted to bring in this cat from Birmingham.
1: No, he'd already brought him in two or three four years before I got there. Wow. Okay, and and he had become like the. He was in the top four most basis because, you know, he could play a little rock and roll, he could play a little jazz. He was really a great player. Damn, but his name, but his name will come to me in a second. Yeah,
0: I cannot but wait for his. I mean, I love, I'm loving where you're at right now.
1: <clears throat> so, but see what would have happened if if Waylon was making an album. They always did nine hours of session work to get a twelve hour song. I mean, twelve song album. Wow. If you were a studio guy and you walked into that room with well, you, you knew in three hours you're going to have four tracks finished.
0: Was this cat's name and Bobby you know, Bobby Dyson?
1: Oh, Bobby Dyson. Yes, I remember him. I don't know if he could read at all.
0: No, but he. But that, that's not who. That's not the cat from Birmingham, though.
1: Uh, Alabama. No. Yeah. 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 No, and, and, uh, the guy from Birmingham was a good reader. As a matter of fact. All right. I remember playing double bass dates with him, where he plays the acoustic bass and I play the Fender.
0: Oh my! See, this is what this is the greatest. Are you kidding me, dude? <laughs> I, I,
1: well, it, it had become kind of they could they could blend the two together as long as we were playing the same note, right? Absolutely. And since the part was written out, we play the same note. And they blend it together, and it was a really big bass sound. And I remember doing Eddie Arnold one day. Right. And Eddie would record with a pretty big orchestra. And uh, and we had the two basses. He played Fender and he played Upright. And and I have to tell you, this guy also played on Dylan's albums when he came down from New York. Oh, uh,
2: uh, really?
1: He was on all, yeah, because, <laughs> what was the producer's name who did Dylan? And Bob, wh- Bob, why uh, oh,
0: well, God, no, I'm I, I'm falling apart. I mean, no, you know, you know, because Nashville Skyline, uh, that's Charlie Daniels, uh, but I have to look. I'm gonna, I'll look. I, we got to get this cat's name. But I'm sorry, I wanted you to finish the Whalen story because you're you're listed on these albums, some of his albums. Well, you know, but
1: you know, you think I remember it? First of all, I have never had any of the records. When you're working all the time? Sure. Oh, the, the record label doesn't call you up and say, come on, get a, a copy of that album he played on three, four months ago. You know? Right, exactly. And, uh, but I do remember Waylon was such a nice guy, okay? And I don't think I played for him often, because I wasn't first call. But years after that, I would be in a restaurant or something, and he'd come over and say, Norman, how you doing? You know? Well, I think he followed my career, my development. Everybody was following your career, dude. Well, I'll tell you another one. Well, there were two or three of them, you know, the the early guys that I worked on. They were always checking on me. (laughs) Who who was that? Yeah, Willie Nelson. I did a Willie Nelson album when I got there in 65. It might have been 65 or 66. We did, uh, who else did we do? I did, well, Felton Jarvis had been the producer who came to Muscle Shoals and brought to TAMS so when we did what kind of food do you think I am? That's right. Felton was from Atlanta, you know. And he ended up getting a job in Nashville running ABC records up there. And that was another reason we wanted to get to Nashville. And, of course, Ray Stevens had been down here arranging the Tommy Groh record. And had written out parts for all of us, and we couldn't read them. And he took us to dinner that night and said, you guys play pop music better than any rhythm section in Nashville. Because they played country, and they're all 35 and 40 years old now. And, you know, we need someone that can play with a young axe. That's what what, what
0: Felton Jarvis said.
1: Yeah. yeah, And and Ray Stevens said, but you've got to get your sight reading together. He said, Ray right at that time was making a living as an orchestrator arranger. He could write music as fast as Mozart. He could write strings and violins and cellos as fast as he could think. And he could write a bass part, you know. And so I grabbed the book. Uh, and also, Rick Hall was saying to Briggs and I, you guys learned to write strings so I don't have to go into, oh, <laughs> yeah I that's hands, right, you know? right 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 right, and, so, right, right. And, and, and you know the horns is like Memphis horns where you got four horns sure you know you got a trumpet and you got a, a tenor and you got a baritone and you got a trombone and that was a so I went down this is this is sort of an interesting thing that happened with Henry Mancini when he came in I think he came in in 69 <clears throat> and uh, uh I went down to uh well, in 69, I get a call to get to, to play with Mancini who's coming in to do Country Standards. And Henry's going to play piano. And every note that was played by that natural Rhythm section, they read it. Oh, one, one, uh, a, a buddy, Spiker, who played violin. Yes. But, but he could read a little bit, though, too. So probably he might have read that part and, and made it more fiddle-like, you know. But, uh, but we got down to the session, and Kerrigan, who came out of school in us. was a good side reader for drums. We did big band sessions together.
0: Yeah. Wait a minute. Wait, wait wait, wait. wait. Stop. Band. You and you and him were, were kicking a big band together?
1: Well, Al Hurt would come in. I think we did four or five albums with Al Hurt. That is so And about badass. a 45-piece band. Oh,
0: oh, I f- oh my studio. God.
1: <clears throat> so we'd have twenty strings, we'd have four trumpets, four bones, sometimes an eight voice choir, three percussionists, I don't know. And and everything was was pretty much written out, okay? And uh uh so so uh, so we had some experience with, with doing that because I was gonna get it on the first take, you know. Mm. He was uh I think he went to the Curtis Institute, he was a conservatory trumpet player. And uh I think I told you the story. He goes to New York, he meets Doc Severinsen. And Doc played with him and said, Fuck, you're great, you know. And Doc was uh NBC Orchestra in New York. You know, he was playing every night on his night show with Clark Terry. Doc Severinsen and Clark Terry. Oh my god. You right it right
0: I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, no, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh and
0: uh
1: and so uh, uh, so uh, Al Hurt's up there and he's just not getting any work he's going down doing a few jazz gigs you know setting in with you. and one day Severance calls him he said okay I got a gig for you <clears throat> New York Philharmonic is doing this piece it's in that so you know, one of the great Italian composers really difficult piece right the first trumpet is sick and he can't play they call me, I can't do it, because I've got Tonight Show band. And, and, and I told uh, the conductor in those days, would have been, uh would have been Bernstein, he said, I told Lenny that I'll send you a guy who can play it. It was the Puccini part. He said, it's difficult. I know a guy can play it, but when he comes in, don't say anything to him. Ask him to play it for you. And they rehearse it with the band once do not open your mouth to this guy. And so, I'll hurt goes strolling on stage at Philharmonic Hall, New York Philharmonic. And Lenny Burns looks at this giant of a guy. And, <clears throat> and they said, the look on his face was, this guy couldn't possibly play the trumpet. He takes his trumpet and burns the fucking Puccini part. And Lenny ran across and leaped into the air and hung off him, hugging <laughs> Right? Leonard oh. Bernstein told the guys at RCA to sign him and he got his record deal. Well, How's that?
0: That is... A, that's a great...
1: That's <laughs> all so we would do that crap, you know? <clears throat> but, uh, uh, oh, hell, I, I gotta go down and have some food. Tomorrow. Hey, man,
0: yo, I was gonna say, can we, can we do... Uh, set two of our interview. I would, I really would love to do another part of our interview. We've been talking about it for a while. Oh yeah. Uh, like I, I was thinking, like I mean, I don't know if you're going to be up on the roof tomorrow morning, but we could do something early in the morning, your time, if you wanted. Oh
1: no no no! I will tell you what I'm doing now. Yeah. I'm I'm completing a bunch of uh, of notes uh, for chapters in the book. I'm I've been writing about. <laughs> Uh, about some of the actors, you know, Robert Mitchum, and Wood, and and, uh, and also my experiences down in Mississippi, Morgan Freeman. You
0: know, oh, whoa, and, uh, whoa, whoa!
1: So that's so I'm going to talk about some of the actors, and uh, and so because those are all interesting guys, you know. And so a lot of a lot of the chapters in the book, I'm not really playing the bass you
0: know no I think but it's equally no, I, well it e-
1: was I, when Mitchum came down I was playing the bass and uh, and we did um, the little old wine drinker me and, and that was it's an interesting story because Mitchum had found this song and had taken it to his friend Dean Martin and Martin thinks it's a piece of shit. I never do a song like that. <laughs> and Mitchum said I bet you a thousand dollars that it'd be a fucking top ten record, even if I sing it. And Mitchum, you know, he did the, He did the vocal on uh, what was that? Uh, <clears throat> something about when he when he played the Revenue or he drove whiskey through the mountains with the Revenueers chasing him and shooting pistols at him. <clears throat> well, anyway. Uh, Fred Foster calls me and said, "Mitchum's made this bet. We're going to do this song, and I can probably make top ten in country with it." And, and that's a great story. So I'm starting outlining that. And then I got a call uh, to do to orchestrate a, a, a record for Clint Eastwood. Who's just he's just come back from all the spaghetti western things. He's about to do Paint Your Wagon. The Broadway play, right? And he's taking vocal lessons. And somebody gave him a record deal. (laughs) And and they hired me to write the, it was going to be Strings and Woodwinds, and then the a quartet, I think it was. And it was all kind of ballads.